There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything you can possibly think of, has a history, like ants, hamburgers and rulers. And we don't mean here boring kings and queens. We literally mean the history of measuring things. And of course, as always, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of poison is all about Roman women? Or that the history of windows is in fact all about the English Reformation. The man not sitting opposite me because we're the other side of the city, but he will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, but equally piloting us through this adventure of homeschooling in history is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello, James. I'm not doing any adventuring at the moment, unfortunately. However, I'm doing these podcasts. I'm loving them. This is another episode in our special series of homeschooling. And in each episode, what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. And what we do is we prove that it does. And today is really great fun. We're doing the history of hiding. How cool is that? It's very cool, which is, of course, all about Elizabeth I and Catholics. So it's about priest holes and hiding. But before we get to that, what about a brainstorm about how you do a general history of hiding, Sam? And I don't just mean hiding in a cupboard, although the history of hide and seek has a very interesting history itself. Yes, I mean, the, the whole point about this, of course, is that we will be doing it in relation to the Tudors, Elizabeth I, but you can do a history of hiding and it's absolutely fascinating. I immediately thought, um, James, because I was in Amsterdam recently before lockdown of Anne Frank, who very famously hid from the Nazis in a house in um, in Amsterdam from 1942 to 1944 and she left us a wonderful little description of the hide in her house in her diary. Her diary is one of the most famous books ever written. Here's a little description of her hiding from the Nazis. Here's a description of the building. A wooden staircase leads from the downstairs hallway to the third floor. At the top of the stairs is a landing with doors on either side. The door on the left takes you up to the spice storage area, attic and loft in the front part of the house. A typically Dutch, very steep, ankle-twisting flight of stairs also runs from the front part of the house to another door opening onto the street. The door to the right of the landing leads to the secret annex at the back part of the house. No one would ever suspect there were so many rooms behind that plain grey door. 
There's just one small step in front of the door and then you're inside. Straight ahead of you is a steep flight of stairs. To the left is a narrow hallway opening onto a room that serves as the family's living room and bedroom. Next door is a smaller room, the bedroom and the study of the two young ladies of the family. To the right of the stairs is a windowless washroom with a sink. The door in the corner leads to the toilet and another one to Margot's and my rooms. Now I've introduced you to the whole of our lovely annex. It's always fascinating but equally chilling. It's very chilling, but you can actually go and see the museum today, and it is, it's extraordinary. What struck me about it when I went about, ooh, ten years or so ago, was quite how small this annex is. And you can go in and you can see um, her and her sister's room. And what's fascinating is the way in which they've pinned or pasted onto the walls pictures that they've drawn. So you get this really sort of... I mean, actually really charming um, sort of snapshot of what life would have been like for those two girls. And you can imagine them escaping it all in their imaginary world and their pictures. But outside is actually terrifying and sinister and one of the most horrific episodes of history in Europe mm. in the last hundred years or so. We can also think about hiding things, not just people, but hiding things. Um, and we can think about secrecy and spies and technologies to secrete things. We can think about Mary, Queen of Scots, for example, and the famous casket letters when she was being written to by the spy Anthony Babington. And her letters were hidden inside bungs in beer barrels and then sent um, down the river uh, and carrying all these sort of secret things. We can also think again about people hiding in trees and famously Charles II hid in the royal oak tree, the English oak tree, which is why we have so many pubs around the country called the royal oak. And this is when the future Charles II, who was going to be Charles II of England, hid to escape from the roundheads following the Battle of Worcester in during the um, civil wars in 1651. Um, this is a story that is told to Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, in 1680. And apparently the king told him that while he was up hiding in this tree, a parliamentarian soldier walked directly below him. And he had to be very sort of quiet so that he didn't hear him, um, hoping that he wouldn't look up. And this story was one of the most popular stories after the Restoration and it's one that we still remember today. I love the story. The, the tree itself doesn't exist anymore. Did you know that? Because there were apparently hordes of tourists in the 17th and 18th centuries who cut it to pieces and took it home. Oh, my word. No, that's terrible. <laughs> terrible. They, they wanted souvenirs of where the king hid. Anyway, those are just some examples of how you can do the history of hiding. And uh, trust me, there are only just a few. There's a fascinating history of hiding. But today we're going to do it in relation to the Tudor Queen Elizabeth I, the daughter of Henry VIII. The key moment here is when Elizabeth is excommunicated by the Pope Pius V in 1570. And up to that point, she'd actually been quite tolerant of English Catholics. But that tolerance and the acceptance of their practice massively changes after she is excommunicated by the Pope. And it's replaced by much harsher measures to search out, to fine and to imprison Catholics. So what you've got are 
a certain amount of Catholics who are practicing their religion and they're being hunted down. And it's in within this context that you start to see priest holes being built. They're hiding places, primarily inside Catholic houses, designed to hide the priests. And you've also got hunters, like a chap called Richard Topcliffe, who was sent out to try and catch them. He was a famous guy. He, he reputedly travelled with a rack. He's a very scary, very scary individual. He's not a man that I would have liked to have met in Elizabethan <laughs> England. Very scary. No, no, no. Have him turn up outside your house. Um, but these priest holes, so they're built into all sorts of places. Absolutely fascinating. And historians and archaeologists are still today finding, uncovering new priest holes we didn't know about. They're often built into chimneys. They're built into cupboards. They're built into little cubby holes in stairways, sometimes under floorboards as well. And there are lots and lots of these that you can actually visit, particularly in National Trust properties. There are a whole range of them. And if you go onto the National Trust website, there is a list of National Trust properties with priest holes that you can actually go and explore. It's a wonderful, wonderful list of houses, houses including Badsley Clinton in Warwickshire, Coton Court in Warwickshire, Moseley Old Hall in Staffordshire, Oxborough Hall in Norfolk, Scotney Castle in Kent and Speak Hall in Merseyside, among others. So if you've got a chance after lockdown, I'd go and look at them. Now, what's absolutely great about priest holes is they're wonderful to explore and to, to, to research historically. And one way of doing that is to look at accounts of people who were actually caught or who used priest holes. And one of them is by a Jesuit priest called John Gerard, who wrote his uh, account of his life in Latin. It was translated. And this is just from that. Have a listen to this. On Easter Monday, we rose earlier than usual for Mass, for we felt there was danger about. As we were preparing everything for Mass before daybreak, we heard suddenly a great noise of galloping hooves. The next moment, to prevent any attempted escape, the house was encircled by a whole troop of men. At once we realised what was afoot. We barred the doors, the altar was stripped, the hiding places opened, and all my books and papers thrown in. It was most important to pack me away first with all my belongings. I was for using the hiding place near the dining room. It was further away from the chapel, the most suspected part of the house, and it had a supply of provisions, a bottle of wine and some light-sustaining biscuits and other food that would keep. So that account goes on and on, and it's absolutely terrifying. But I particularly like the way that that account suggests two things. One, of how tough it would be to hide in there. He's worried about what he's going to eat and what he's going to drink. And two, that there is more than one priest hole in that house. So they're absolutely prepared for people to come and to hunt them out. Absolutely. And throughout the decade, the last decades of Elizabethan England, Catholic priests were hunted down and tortured in order to betray the networks of tentacle-like that came out of continental Europe into places like England. And over this period, what we see is a mass of building activity to build these holes or hides in which priests on the run might shelter from the authorities. But to give this a little more context, we need to fill in the background of what is happening in religious terms under the reign of Queen Elizabeth, and particularly 
with the Catholics. Now, starting in 1559, this is about just a year or so after Elizabeth has been made queen, and we have something called the Protestant Settlement, which basically decides on the official Anglican religion of the country. And what it meant was, in a very basic way, that all people had to attend their local parish church, which was the Church of England. And in fact, if you see this against the backdrop of the Tudor period, in some ways this is quite positive, because we have something agreed finally, after years of toing and froing in religion, with Henry VIII and his break from Rome, but actually being quite conservative in religion, then his son, Edward VI, being much more Protestant in what he believed and in what he decreed for the country. And then Catholic Mary, everything comes undone and England is returned to the Catholic fold. In 1558, when Elizabeth ascends the throne, we then have a Protestant queen who at the outset of her reign brings back Protestantism. And this is something that the majority of people could agree with and get behind. However, and here is the problem, not everyone was happy with this. And there were two groups in particular who didn't like it because they didn't find what they wanted in religious terms in the official church religion of the country. And these, on the one hand, were Puritans and separatist Protestant groups such as the Brownists and the Barrowists. Basically, what Elizabeth had done didn't go far enough for them. They wanted something else. And the other group is the Catholics. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. Now, there are some similarities between Catholics and Puritans, at least structurally. And this is they believed in widely different things. But because they couldn't find the religion that they wanted within the church, they had to do so within the household. And so we find them living their religious lives within the household. And for Catholics, priests are central to their religion. And this is this fits in and explains why these Catholic priests are coming over in the first place and then why the English state is trying to stop them and to persecute them. Because Catholic priests, as I said, are central to the religion of Catholics. Because unlike the Protestant religion, for Catholics, priests were those mediators or intercessors with God. And they were central to the working of Mass and the sacrament of the Eucharist. So in other words, the bread and wine, which were quite literally seen as the blood and body of Christ. You need a priest present to enable that to take place. They were also an important part of confession. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Catholics confess their sins to a priest, and this was fundamental to their belief in salvation. In other words, that they would they would confess their sins and then would be pardoned for them, say some prayers, and then would go 
into heaven rather than to hell. That's a very sort of crude way of looking at it. But what we see then in order to cater for this is we see elaborate networks of Catholic strongholds within England where priests would move from house to house administering mass and within this context priests have to go into hiding and as Sam said there are all sorts of hiding places that can still be seen today. Now the other thing that we need to understand is what is happening in Europe. We've had something called the Council of Trent which met between 1545 and 1563 and this was the Catholic Church's counter-reformation. In other words it was the Catholic Church's response to the Protestant Reformation and they did a number of things as they met in this sort of series of councils. Firstly they reformed the abuses of the church so all those things that the Protestants felt were wrong with the church they cleaned them up and secondly they defined what Catholic doctrine was with much greater clarity. The medieval Catholic Church was basically a huge umbrella, open to everyone, open to all sorts of interpretations, but actually in opposing Protestantism, they gave great clarity to what actually being a Roman Catholic was. They denounced all Protestant heresies, and here, importantly, they set about training a new generation of priests to obliterate them. And England was one of the main targets of missionary priests. So if we look at the history of Catholics in Elizabethan England then, we can see three distinct phases. So firstly, the period that Sam was talking about when Elizabeth came to the throne from 1558 to the period when she was excommunicated by Pope Pius V in 1570. Now initially, Catholics during this period were tolerated and they weren't persecuted so long as they were outwardly obedient. Elizabeth famously did not want windows into men's souls. And there was actually much in this 1559 settlement that was acceptable to people who were more conservative in their religion. So they were a little more Catholic in their religion. So, for example, private chapels for the nobility were allowed. And there was a separate Latin version of the prayer book for use at Oxford and Cambridge universities. What happens though is that when in 1570 Elizabeth is excommunicated, what this means is the gloves are basically off. Elizabeth is open game and could be removed and assassinated and this coincides with an influx of new missionary priests coming in from abroad. It also coincides with the revolt of in the revolt of the Northern Earls in 1569, or the Northern Rebellion, which was basically an unsuccessful attempt by Catholic nobles in the north of England to depose Queen Elizabeth I and replace her with Mary, Queen of Scots. So we've got all this activity going on. We've got a series of plots, not just the, the rising of the Northern Earls, but the, the Rodolphi plot, the Throgmorton plot, the Babington plot, all of these are seeking to assassinate Queen Elizabeth and replace her with Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots. And we see that in 1571, 1583 and 1586. And therefore, what we have is an increased persecution after that period, 1570 to 
1588, when we have the Armada, a much harsher persecution of Catholics. We have a series of laws brought in. Um, it, in 1571, it is treason to call the monarch a heretic, a treason to introduce papal bills. In 1581, it is treason to convert or be converted to Catholicism. And if you did, you'd be fined £20 a month for something that they called recusancy. Being a recusant is basically outwardly being Catholic. In 1585, it was treason for Jesuits or seminary priests to enter the country. So we have this sort of degree of persecution. We have recusants are restricted to within five miles of their homes. They are fined. They are imprisoned. They are arrested. So they're treated terribly. And this is also a time when they, the English know that Spain is looking to invade. So they're deeply distrustful of Catholics in England wanting to join forces with Catholics in Spain. So there's an attempt to deal with them. After the Armada, so after 1588 to 1603, the Catholic threat diminishes, although the assassination of Elizabeth still remains a constant threat. And to subdue this Catholic threat, what Elizabeth's government tried to do was to divide and rule. So to set up the Catholic community against each other, in particular to set up the Jesuit order against other Catholics. And there was some hope that when Elizabeth I died, her successor, James VI and I, would be more tolerant. But as we found out in our episode on broken promises and the gunpowder plot, this was something that didn't happen. Now, one of the reasons that we know so much about this period and about how Catholics were treated, how they suffered, is because Catholics wanted to keep a record of all the martyrs who had suffered at the hands of the Tudors. And if you are really interested in this, have a look at the wonderful collection of volumes in the Catholic Record Society. And I want to end with one extract from the autobiography of William Weston. The days that followed the Parliament of 1584 were bitter days for Catholics and filled with immeasurable suffering. Earlier, indeed, there had been great cruelty. Many had been broken, but now the fury of persecution burst upon them more savagely still. It was the power held by the Earl of Leicester that was responsible combined with Cecil's counsel for these two men, these are two very important government ministers, for these two men in control under the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, Catholics now saw their own country, the country of their birth, turned into a ruthless and unloving land. All men fastened their hatred on them. They lay in ambush for them, betrayed them, attacked them with violence and without warning. They plundered them at night, confiscated their possessions, drove away their flocks and stole their cattle. Every prison, no matter how foul or dark, was made glorious by the noble and great-hearted protestations of saintly confessors and even martyrs. Now a single town, now several throughout the kingdom, experienced the sudden incursion of secret spies. Inns, taverns, lodging houses, bedchambers were searched with extreme rigour and any suspected person unable to give a satisfactory account of himself was put into prison or under guard until morning or until he could clear himself before the magistrates of the suspicion 
that he was a Catholic, and in particular a Catholic priest. Counterfeit letters were written purporting to come from Catholics discussing plots against the Queen. It was fashioned to believe they planned the Queen's death. Some spies, in fact, went so far as to disguise themselves as Catholics and get themselves arrested and imprisoned in order to confess their guilt and inflame the people's passions against Catholics. In London sometimes I witnessed this myself and listened to Catholics groaning and grieving over it. A report would go round and be confirmed as certain fact that the Queen's Council had passed a decree for the massacre of all Catholics in their houses on this or that night. Then many people would abandon their homes and lodgings and pass the night in fields. Others would hire boats and drift up and down the river and a rumour was afoot supposed to come from the lips of Secretary Cecil himself that he was going to take steps to reduce Catholics to such destitution that they would be incapable of helping one another and like swine would be grateful if they could find a husk on which to appease their hunger. And they listen to that as a way that the Catholic <laughs> community saw themselves persecuted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Um, what's really interesting about the way you can study this is you can study the different characters. So we've heard some accounts there. I talked about the uh, John Gerard who was describing hiding. Love John the, Gerard. He's all about oranges. He is. One of the most interesting of people is a guy called Nicholas Owen, who mm. lived between 1562 and 1606. And he was an, uh, a recusant and he lived in Oxfordshire. And he was a very talented carpenter and joiner. So someone who's very skilled at making things with wood. And he became one of the most important builders of priest holes in England and came to be highly esteemed by English Catholics. There's a wonderful little narrative here from Henry Garnett and his, his um, narrative of the gunpowder plot. And he's talking about Nicholas Owen. His chief employment was in making of secret places to hide priests and church stuff in from the fury of searches, in which kind he was so skilful both to devise and frame the places in the best manner and his help therein desired in so many places that I verily think no man can be said to have done more good of all those that laboured in the English vineyard. For first, he was the immediate occasion of saving the lives of many hundreds of persons. So there you go, Nicholas Owen, responsible for that. So, James, I think we should go on to our quiz yes, to see if definitely. you guys have been listening. First of all, when was Elizabeth I excommunicated by the Pope? Oh, that's a good one. Now, secondly, what date was the Elizabethan settlement? Thirdly, what was the name of the English Jesuit priest whose account described hiding from searches? Fourthly, in what ways were Catholics punished during Elizabethan England. Next up, name three places where you might find a priest hole. And lastly, what is the name given to those who were openly Catholic during this period? That's a wonderful quiz. I wish I could do it myself. I just, I know all the answers though, James. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a task as well. Uh, lovely, lovely. We have a small task. Now your task is to re-listen to this podcast and answer the following questions. Now, I want to read you out two statements here. So the first is, Catholic priests were dangerous enemies and traitors to the Queen. That's the first one. Catholic priests were dangerous enemies and traitors to the Queen. And the second one 
these Catholic priests were brave martyrs who died for their faith. Now, listening back, use the information in the podcast and write two short pieces presenting an argument to support each of these statements. So in other words, the, the, what the Catholics felt the priests were doing and how important they were for them. And then, of course, the opposite side of the coin, what the Protestants felt was dangerous about Catholic priests and their, their enemies. Very good. And you could also build yourself a priest hole in the chimney. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So a slightly more practical, practical thing for you uh, to do there. Thanks for listening, guys. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. Please find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Come and make friends. We want to hear from every one of you to see how you're getting on in lockdown. Thanks so much for listening. We've got more coming your way soon. Bye. Bye, guys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.